The gospel lesson is taken from the Gospel of John, chapter 1, and I will be reading verses 1 through 14. This is the gospel of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. There came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning the light, so that through him all men might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who receive him, to those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children, born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and lived for a while among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. The word of the Lord. There are two big phrases that I learned in seminary, and not the only two, I think, but two big ones that I'll mention today. I hope not, only two. Um, and uh, they still obviously stick with me uh, to this day. I, I like the sound of them, for one thing. They are German phrases, and they originated in the 19th century. Uh, among German biblical scholars in an attempt to help uh, in understanding how to interpret uh, the scriptures. The first is the phrase, Zitz im Leben, which means the life situation. The second is Zitz im Glauben, the faith situation. And what this means is that you need to take into account the context, the social setting, the political setting uh, of any text so that you can help yourself understand what is going on. The second, of course, has to do with the faith situation. What did the people believe uh, what, what informed their lives? What was their, if you will, to use a phrase from today, our, their worldview? And uh, what was the faith of the average person? What did they believe? What did they expect? It helps to interpret the scriptures. Now, when we take the life situation, then what this means is that we, we want to understand the context in which Jesus was born. 
We want to know everything that we can about that day in the time and place when he lived. For he came at a certain time and a certain place to a certain people with a certain faith understanding. And when we fix that uh, context, it enables us then to understand the Bible. The phrases sound more, if you will, technical than they really are. It's just common sense in one sense. But let's consider the faith situation. What did those people believe? What did Jesus actually inherit from his mother in terms of faith? Uh, what was he taught as a child? Uh, how uh, did he, when he went to the synagogue, how did he assimilate what was being taught? Now, these things are important. And whenever one considers a biblical text, it's good to go back and to consider, if you will, simply the context so that you don't take it out of context. Well, this takes us to the present. When we understand what took place then, it will help us better to be able to understand the situation in which we live. We have a context, too. There's some things going on all the time around us. People have certain opinions and views about life, certain assumptions that they never, ever maybe even understand themselves. They just simply take it to be the case. Look at the political context or the social context in which we live. I, I, I almost always, the first thing I do on Sunday morning early is to look at one particular news website. I, I won't mention it, uh, but I look at it. And uh, I read a few stories from it, and I read two this morning, early this morning. The first was entitled, What is so darn scary about Christmas? In other words, how do we get from, if you will, Charles Dickens, a Christmas carol, and Jimmy Stewart, it's a Wonderful Life, or Edmund Gwynn, the miracle on, what was it, 34th Street? To the ACLU suing to remove any expression of Christianity from the public square. How did we get there? That's a curiosity, isn't it? Might be important to know. And um, to the place where many of us hesitate to say Merry Christmas, particularly if we think we don't know the other person. How did we get there? We didn't used to be that fearful. We weren't on guard, but we're on guard. How, how did this develop? The second article I read was headlined this way. 25 killed as blast hits two churches in Nigeria. I didn't know blast hit. That's quite a strange way. I know that people throw bombs, but a blast just doesn't hit out of the, out of the blue. Blast hits two churches, but that's a headline writer. Uh, what happened, if you read the story, is that Boko Haram a very radical Islamic group, which has been bombing churches for a very long time, uh, on yesterday, on Christmas Day, bombed two churches. It's not out of the ordinary for Boko Haram and not out of the ordinary for Nigeria, for they have killed already in such attacks 
491 people this year. And that's not to mention the ordinary warfare that goes on. How did this happen? Why do you want to bomb Christians in a church who are celebrating Christmas? Well, it's good to know that these things are going on in our world. And not to ignore them or explain them away. They're, they really are happening. We're only talking about degrees here, aren't we? What is taking place in Nigeria and what we're afraid to do here. Uh, so we need to remember these things. And I've, I've set all of that to fix a context so that I can look at Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Now, you don't need to get nervous. I'm not going to preach a long time today either, uh, even though I have all my teeth. <laughs> um, I'm not going to preach a long time. Uh, but I do want you to look at Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. And that is a powerful passage. This is one of the most amazing passages in the scriptures, and I'll tell you why in a moment. But let's read it again. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times. Now, there's a context in which Jesus came. In the past, God spoke through the prophets. And he did so in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Jesus is in the long list of prophetic line. But he also insinuates here and makes it clear in other places that he has spoken definitively and finally in his son, Jesus Christ whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. Now this is reminiscent as we read through it of the Gospel of John chapter 1. Notice some of the same language. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. No wonder the early church confessed Jesus as Lord and one with the Father. Sustaining all things by his powerful word. If you read Colossians, it is clear that he is holding all things together. After he had provided purification for sins, he died on the cross. Someone has described the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke in particular, as passion narratives with long introductions. He has, indeed, died for our sins made purification, satisfaction for our sins. And he sat down at the right hand of majesty. He has, in other words, ascended. And on Ascension Sunday, I preached a sermon on the Ascension. He has ascended on high. And uh, he is clearly, and this is an important argument in the book of Hebrews, he is superior uh, to the angels and also later on, it's clear that he's superior by far than Moses. Now, let's stop there. What do you find in this situation? Well, he is the eternal God, obviously. The language is very high. And it identifies Jesus with the Father. 
And so it makes real his teaching when he said earlier, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. And it now is reiterated here in this text. He is the expressed image of God himself. And notice that this one holds all things together. He created and sustains all of life. Through him was the original creation. And also here, it's clear that he is a redeemer. He has redeemed and made satisfaction for sins. He has purified us. He is also here said to be the son of David, which means he is the king of Israel. Uh, I heard one of these programs on Discover Channel or one of these National Geographic channels doing a life of Jesus. And one biblical scholar said, well, you know, uh, he's called the son of David and, the, uh, and a king after the line of David. But really, uh, he's nothing like David. David was a man of war. Jesus was a pacifist. Of course, they forget that he's coming again with, to judge the world. No, he's the son of David. And uh, if he is the meek and mild in the manger who grew up to teach and to preach, certainly the second time he comes, uh, it will be to execute righteousness. And here he has no rival. If you read the language in the time and place in which they lived, he has no rival. Nothing in creation rivals him. He has no peer in all created things, for he himself is uncreated. And so this is a magnificent passage if you read it. If you read it, it is a magnificent passage. And I want to point out two things about the passage to show, in some sense, its function in this uh, context. Now, in Greek... Verses 1 through 4 constitutes one sentence. One whole sentence. In your translations, they divide it up sometimes into three or four sentences. That's all right. It helps us understand it. The thought is still there. But it does help to know that verses 1 through 4 is one whole sentence. And I want you to notice what all it has packed in there. What a robust sentence, huh? It includes everything. All of these things I've mentioned and all these doctrines are suggested there. All of them. And it sets forth who Jesus is. Now, that's, that's not to pass by us without understanding the significance of it. This, in some sense, is a summary statement an understanding of who Jesus is by the writer of Hebrews. And in it being a summary statement, it obviously is doctrinal. We can know something about God. These things we can know. God has revealed himself. For God has spoken to us through his son in these last days. By the way, notice that, that the last days began 2,000 years ago. It might help some of the more radical interpreters of the book of Revelation. Notice, it is a summary statement of who the person Jesus Christ is. 
And since he has spoken, it also includes his teaching. What did he teach? This has to do with the person and work of Christ. The whole passage, the whole context is really the sum of the gospel of Jesus Christ as to his person and work. And the early church obviously thought this was so important that they formalized it in such creeds later as the Apostles' Creed, not written by the Apostles, by the way. The Nicene Creed, the Athanasian Creed, and other great creeds, and we have it in our own Westminster Confession of Faith. So Christianity is not just a feeling per se. It is not just, well... Uh, Jesus is a fine example to follow, it really has to do with a communication from God. A message and a person has come to us from another world, into our world. And this is who he is, and this is what he did. Now, how was he received in his day? Well, he was received pretty shabbily, wouldn't you say? I'm not so sure that the manger scene has to do with that. That might have to do with something else. Just simply because there was no room. But we know that when Jesus reached his majority and began to preach and teach as a rabbi, that he was received rather shabbily, oh, greatly by some for a while. And his disciples were received rather shabbily, weren't they? They were persecuted by their own friends and neighbors. And later on, this broke out into a full persecution in the Roman Empire, several persecutions, wave after wave after wave, until Constantine came along and saw his vision. But Christians were persecuted in the early church. That's the context in which he was received. He wasn't received very well, was he? Neither was his, his disciples. Now, the second thing I want you to notice about this is that this is probably a creedal statement. If it's a summary statement, it may very well be a creedal statement. There are creeds in the Bible. That's why we use creeds in our church, and we have a biblical creed that we will use today. It is, too, a summary statement, if you will. From Colossians. We will confess our faith that we believe certain things to be true because God has revealed himself. It forms our worldview, our outlook, everything that we are. And if Jesus is who he says he is, then this is the defining characteristic of a Christian's life. A creedal statement, something that we believe and we stand by. I once heard a country preacher say, if you don't uh, believe in something or stand for something, you will fall for everything. And there's some truth in that. There's some truth in that. C.K. Chesterton puts it in a, a, a different way. That when people cease to believe in God, they begin to believe in everything. If you do not stand for something and understand certain things to be true, you're very vulnerable to the winds and change of time. And so Christians have a conviction. We have a conviction 
that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself and that he has saved us. We have received him as our Lord and Savior. And we would be without hope in the world save in his sovereign mercy. That these are not just idle words that these people made up. It was indeed, they were confronted by a person in human history. And it was God in human flesh. A creed. Important to believe in something. Today, the fashion is, hey, don't get hung up and narrow-minded by believing in something to be true. But we live in a time when people believe that there's no, as Francis Schaeffer used to say, true truth. But he believed, these people believed in something. Now, let's enter the present again. Jesus is a great prophet who has spoken. And we do live in the last days. And uh, our days are rather strange. And it might not be strange for those maybe under 30 years of age, but probably for you over 30 or 40 years of age, it's, it's kind of getting stranger and stranger and stranger. Why? Well, I could remember when everyone wished you a Merry Christmas. And there was no hesitation. And I can remember saying Merry Christmas to people and I thought it would be well received and I thought I was spreading good cheer. But we're not so certain today, are we? People have to be encouraged to be what they are. Right? Furthermore, we used to think that we would be supported in high places and the media would be sure to include that, but we're not, are we? The supports have been removed. Now, we're not being attacked by the Boko Haram, but there is, particularly among our elites, and if you will, the new church called Academia, the real church in America, there is an awful lot of pressure for you to take what you hold most dearly and keep it to yourself because what you are is divisive. You have now become the problem. And if you look at television, you know that all the comedians, particularly people like Jon Stewart, are very hostile to Christianity. Very hostile. At one time, they would be run out on a rail, probably just simply by public sentiment for ridiculing Christians, but not today. Well, there is in one sense an attempt to squelch free speech. That's what political uh, incorrectness is all about. It means that certain groups are trying to control the public discourse. That's all that it means. It's an attempt to squelch free speech. But you still have free speech constitutionally. Don't forget that. What is our response to be all this? I said I would be quick. Well, as I summarize some attitudes and verses in the Bible, I think it's important for us to be, as the scripture says, wise as serpents and harmless as 
as doves. Uh, we are to learn how to negotiate the present. For Jesus' disciples had to learn how to negotiate their day. The truth is the same. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The truth of the gospel is the same. But we do live in different contexts and we need to know how to negotiate our day as they did theirs. And I notice the Apostle Paul says, who had great experience in this area, said, pray that we live a godly and peaceful life. I think that's your first response. Oh, Lord, we pray that we might live a godly and peaceful life. This is very tough for some of the churches in Nigeria. This is next to impossible for those Christians in North Korea. There is no peace. We're going to be confronted more and more of how Christians are being persecuted around the earth in many countries. Christians are being driven out of the entire Middle East as I speak. People are being turned away from jobs and opportunities to have living quarters. And in some cases, as in Nigeria, their churches are bombed. In Egypt, the Coptic Christians are in fear for their lives. They haven't been able to repair their churches for years. They haven't been able really to meet in certain locations in Egypt for years in peace with Ali Mob attacking their prayer meetings. I had a student who was the national leader for the Coptic Christians. Until he got to know me pretty well, he was afraid to even speak of the conditions in his own land. Now, we ought to have, honestly, the church filled today. We have freedom. And a lot of professing Christians. It's a privilege to meet in the house of God with the people of God on the appointed day that God has given to us. I'd like last night's crowd here today. Put up chairs, people standing in the back looking for a place to sit. Of course, no one wants to sit on that row or that row right there. It's too close to me, huh? But we ought to pray to live a godly and peaceful life. And we need to pray for leaders who truly will execute justice. Part of the problem around the world in these places of persecution is that the authorities themselves are quaking in their shoes. They too are subject to political and social pressure and maintaining their power. They would want to maintain their power at all costs, not just to be just. It is true what a lawyer friend of mine once said, don't expect in our courts real justice. That's a sad commentary, isn't it? What else would you go to court for? And yet, we have to play political games, even in our courts. Pray for leaders who will execute justice and who will honor the things of the Lord. Pray for that. 
I pray every Sunday, as you well know, you might get tired of hearing me pray the same prayer for our leaders, but Paul commands it. I don't think I have a choice. In the public assembly, I must pray for those who have the rule over us in the civil realm. And I do pray earnestly, for I know that our welfare has to do and is tied in the civil realm with the leaders we get. Make no mistake about it. And we are to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. We are to learn how to conduct ourselves in the world. But the final thing is we need to learn how to speak and witness for Christ. We need to learn how to speak and witness for Christ. This takes wisdom and it takes courage. But we need to know how to speak. Our, our speech is always to be seasoned with salt. We're not to abuse or manipulate people. But we must, when the time comes, tell them what we are. Someone has described a Christian as a poor beggarly sinner who is hungry and needy telling another person where they can find bread. My friend, Jesus is the light of the world. He is a blessing to everyone. And as Christians who love Christ, who've been saved through his blood and life, need to learn how to speak for him in our generation. A true speech, an honest speech, a speech that respects and is reverent toward other people. But speak we must, for we are witnesses to that light that has come into the world. Hebrews 1 through 4, do you believe it? Then we are called to live it and to speak it to the glory of God. Amen.